Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal of Navigator's Western Operations. Welcome to the Western Edge, a Navigator podcast featuring the latest perspectives on Western Canada's biggest stories. On this episode, we are joined by Kevin Falcon, the leader of the BC Liberal Party. Kevin was elected leader in February 2022, returning to politics after nine years having previously served as Deputy Premier, Minister of Finance, Minister of Transportation, and Minister of Deregulation. Keep listening to hear our discussion of the big changes that took place over the course of the past year, including a name change for the BC Liberals. In this episode, we look ahead at what Kevin and the party are focused on this year with a new premier in British Columbia in David Eby. It's our last episode in our four-part series looking back at 2022 in Western politics, and this is The Western Edge. joining us here today. We're here in a new year and we're talking British Columbia politics with uh, Mr. Kevin Falcon. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a new year. We have a new premier. We have a new leader of the opposition and we have a new party name. What's going on in British Columbia? It seems like last year was a was a big year in British Columbia government and politics. Yeah, it sure was. It, it was for me too. It was, gosh, it's hard to believe that it was only in February that I became leader of this party. You know, we had a very lengthy leadership race honestly, if I had to do it all over again, I'm not sure I'd go through a year-long <laughs> leadership race again, but we had a very long leadership race. I, I became leader in February, and it's just been, honestly, a blur. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of by-elections, we've had a convention, we've had name change, we've had, you know, all kinds of a spring session, a fall session. So it's been a very, very busy time, but I like that. I get energized by you know, making things happen and getting this party moving in what I think is the right direction so that we can rebuild the support that we need to make sure that uh, we become government in the next election, which I'm absolutely convinced we will do. Well, I think there's a lot of party members that are certainly glad you did go through that long leadership race and and, and are now setting up and leading the party and setting the party up for the next election. Say, So let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about your leadership before we get into other things that are going on in British Columbia and the current government. There's not a lot of positions you haven't held uh, in your time in and around politics. I know you had a break for a number of years. What's the difference between sort of that opposition role, that cab- many cabinet roles and very senior cabinet roles that you've played? There's a lot of projects still ongoing uh, in British Columbia that you were a part of, I think of transportation in particular. Mm-hmm. But what's the big difference now as as leader uh, of, of the party, leader of the opposition, and how have you found that transition into that role and back into politics? You know, the transition, I think, has actually gone remarkably smoothly. Uh, you know, I knew that I was never going to much like being an opposition uh, person because, you know, frankly, as opposition, all you can do is critique government and criticize what they're doing. And granted, this current government gives us a lot of material to work with, but it's not as satisfying as being able to actually say, okay, now we're going to fix problems. That's really what I'm all about. I'm kind of a get stuff done kind of guy. And so I find that part a little frustrating. But, you know, quite frankly, you know, when I decided I was going to come back and help the BC Liberals, you know, get refocused, re-energized, rebuild and get this party moving again, uh, I knew I had a big job ahead of me. But I like big challenges, quite frankly. And I knew that the core of the party was solid, but that we just had to shift direction a little bit. We had to make sure that we demonstrate to British Columbians that we're not only good managers and we not only get the economic stuff, but that we've also got a conscience and that we want to fix, you know, seemingly intractable social problems. 
and provide solutions there too that I think the public will really get on board with. And that I wanted to make sure that we were uh, what I call a big tent party. This is really important to me. As a you know, as a longtime conservative, I think it's so important that we you know give a message of inclusivity. That I want people feeling really welcome in our party, regardless of you know who they choose to love or what God they may choose to pray to. Um, I, if they share our values and our principles, that you know, a private sector-driven economy is the right way to generate revenues to a government so you can do lots of good things, then this is the party for you. And that was really, really important to me. And I'm really liking the the progress that we're making there. You know, it was striking in, in both your efforts to win the leadership and, and since. You've talked a lot about that, reaching out to voters or, or British Columbians that, that haven't found a home with, with your party in recent elections or maybe switch parties, whatever the case may be. What has been your biggest challenge? as as leader well i you know i don't know that there's any single huge challenge um you know I, when i when i came in and took over the party a lot of the mlas you know i'd, I'd spent t- 10 years in the private sector and so you know although i was still involved in some charities and on some boards both corporate and charity boards like you know the vancouver canuck hospice house and street to home foundation work with homelessness and Lionsgate Hospital Foundation, et cetera. You know, I I still was pretty disconnected from the party. So when I became the leader, um, I took a look around. And I thought, wow, first of all, all these MLAs, most of them are new to me because, you know, they ran after I had already retired from government. And the biggest uh, challenge I think I had was to get them as a team to understand that in politics, you win as a team and you lose as a team. And that focus is really important that we can't do a hundred different things and we can't talk about a hundred different subjects. We have to be very, very focused on, on, on what we're doing as a party and what our critique of government is gonna be because the public also has a very short attention span. And so, you know, we need to be very, very focused and professional in our doing our job as, a, as an opposition and making sure that we remind the public just what a terrible job uh, in fact, what terrible outcomes we're getting, forget the politics, just the outcomes that we're getting, whether in healthcare or crime or mental health and addictions or affordability are really, really poor and that we can do a lot better. And then it's, you know, slowly over time, we will be rolling out what we will be doing, you know, how the BC Liberals will handle these big challenges that we face so that the public will not only see that we're a good opposition in terms of holding government to account, but that we've also got big, bold ideas. And that's what really inspires me as a leader, because I, I don't do this job because I need the job or because I want to, you know, see my name in the news or any of that kind of stuff. That's, you know, that's not me at all. I am doing this for my kids' generation. You know, I've got two daughters, 12 and 9, and I think about that generation a lot. And I look at the vacuum of leadership at almost every level of government today uh, across North America. And I just think to myself, you know, this we can do so much better but it does require a skill set. And the skill set, I would argue, is one in which you've got some public sector you know, background and experience, which I do as a former finance minister, health minister, transportation minister, et cetera, but, but also private sector experience. Because mm-hmm. I do think it's important that you also understand the economy and how to get things done and how to execute and how to take an organization, give them focus, hold people accountable, and get them executing on big, you know, bold decisions. So you know, I think those are the challenges that any leader faces in any organization. But I have to tell you that the team has really responded very, very well. Really, you have to judge us by results, too. 
And I think our results thus far are really good. We've won two by-elections by very substantial margins. You know, the last quarter of this year was our best fundraising quarter, you know, since the new fundraising rules have been brought in. They're, you know, the team is very unified. Morale is very high. And everywhere I go, I'm feeling really positive feedback from the public. So those are, you know, I think really positive steps. Well, you mentioned the word unify, and you can probably guess where I'm going to start going with this. So, you know, fully acknowledged, you know, it really does appear that the party is very united coming out of leadership, which is not always the case coming out of any yeah. leadership or any political party. True. Some of your your former rivals are, are, are key members of your shadow cabinet. I look at Ellis Ross and his position with energy, for example, always interesting here in Alberta, and someone who's really well known to us here, here as well and respected in this province. But that unity piece, that that was a big part of the dialogue and the direction you've taken the party in as leader, and it's led to to a, a name change, or at least the process of changing a name that's ongoing. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about it? It's BC United, of course. I think yes. most, most of our listeners would know that. Tell us a little about your thought process leading that, because it's been discussed before by previous premiers yes. and previous leaders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now we have the change. Tell us a little bit why and and, sure. and where that's going. Sure. So a bit of a history for especially for your uh, viewers that are outside of the province of BC. Um, you know, British Columbia's always had a little bit of a unique uh, provincial political situation in that we've uh, historically had the NDP party, which is the, you know, in historically, you know, pretty socialist to this day, really. Many of those socialist roots are still there. They believe in socialism. They believe in big government, et cetera. And then, you know, the center right was always a coalition because at some point, the conservatives and the liberals over the years fighting each other to defeat the NDP found out and realized that they were dividing up the same vote, really, uh, and allowing the NDP to form government in 1972. And so, you know, there used to be a, a party called the Social Credit Party that became the government of British Columbia for many, many years. You know, it was Van der Zandt was the, was the premier then. Van der Zandt was the last lead. Well, last, one of last the last one. leaders. Yeah. But it started with W.A.C. Bennett and then yeah. Bill Bennett, his son. And they governed very successfully in British Columbia for years. And the thing that was attractive about social credit is the name itself meant nothing, to be honest with you, but it provided an umbrella for people that federally might vote liberal or conservative or, you know, green or whatever, but provincially could come together because they had one common enemy, if you will, and that that is the NDP. And so that that's one thing they could all agree on, that they're generally not good government. And so that historically, that coalition was very important in British Columbia. So when when it blew up under Bill Vanderzam, because he, you know, was an interesting leader, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, the party kind of blew up, and then it was replaced by the BC Liberal Party. Now, the BC Liberal Party was totally separate from the Federal Party. They had severed their connections, um, you know, but the BC Liberals be really effectively became the party that was going to replace the old social credit, the coalition. And it was difficult because conservatives had trouble voting for a party called liberal because right. they said to themselves, geez, we're not liberal, you know, but what's this? And, and, but eventually over time, we're able to, you know, let the public know that it really was truly a coalition. So it's a big tent, right? I mean, it's there, always, it been, really is. Like, yeah. There, there'd be people like myself that were, you know, longtime federal conservatives, but we also had longtime federal liberals. Um, and together we all worked and we worked together really well, to be honest with you. And it just really shows how sometimes there's not a huge chasm between the two parties, but, and yeah, we worked together and that went very, very well. But over the years, there has always been this complaint that we get from members of the public and others about the confusion that the name sometimes suggests. And, and especially newer people coming here from Alberta or what have you um, are really confused when they're looking at a vote that says BC Liberals. 
And then there's a provincial party here called BC Conservatives. And although they're not connected to the federal party, it also causes confusion. So people think, oh, I'm a conservative. So I guess I should vote for them, even though they're very fringe and they've, you know, they've never really amounted to much. But it does cause confusion. So one of the things I said when I ran for leader is we'll look at a new name. If that's where the membership wants to go, we'll go there. And and uh, and that's why we ultimately came up with the name BC United. Again, a name that was generated not by the elites in the party, but really from the grassroots. We had over 2000 name suggestions. And that was the one that rose to the top in terms of meeting all the requirements. And then we went to the membership and said, here's the name that has been, you know, the winning name that was suggested out of the over 2000 that were suggested. What do you think? And we had over 80% support from the party for that name. And so now we just have to get it approved officially at a convention at the end of this month. And then we just have to get the branding and logo work done, et cetera. And then we will be the BC United. Well, branding is something that's uh, it's, it's really close to what we do here at Navigator. And I know how difficult it is to rebrand something. I often say to yeah. clients, right? It's, it's, it's a lot easier to, 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 to brand well than to rebrand later. Yeah. This is a bit of a different circumstance because you're seeing it as an opportunity, a positive step forward. So the timeline, you're, you're hoping to have this in place for the next election. If we're looking at the end of the yes. month for ratification, assuming that was, that would then things would happen pretty pretty quickly in the in first quarter here this year? Yeah, yeah, it would happen pretty quickly. It depends how, you know, the, the branding exercise and getting that work done uh, will take a little bit of time. You got to be thoughtful as you go through that, as you know, but, and, you know, it's everything like from colors to logo to, you know, it's like creating a whole new yeah. thing. So we want to make sure we get it right and we will. And the moment we've got that in place, then we will, you know, uh, at, we have to choose the timing carefully because we are not in government. We do not control the electoral map in terms of when the next election will be. And although we brought in fixed election dates as a government back when we were in power, this NDP government has been, uh, and we saw this in the election of 2020, they called an election even though the law said they weren't supposed to be calling an election, but they didn't care. They used the pandemic as, as an excuse because they saw an opportunity to, to get a, a majority government, which they did. And so now we have to be careful because I don't trust them. They say there's not going to be a spring election, but you know how it is in politics. Minds get changed. So we just have to be really careful about the timing of when we implement this name. And I always said to the members, we'll be smart about it. Just you have to trust us. We will be smart about when we do it. And uh, But I, I have to say, that's just a detail to me. The more important thing is it reinforces the big tent party that I really want the public to understand about us as BC Liberals that we really do want those that share our values and principles to really feel welcome in this big tent so that we can work together to bring in a good common sense government that's gonna run things a lot more effectively with better outcomes than we're getting right now, understanding that we're gonna be very inclusive and welcoming to, to all that share our values. I wanna move move on to some specific issues and talk a little bit about the new premier. And I'm, the political in me is dying to get to that lack of trust and when the next elections come, but we'll save that speculation sure. at the end here. Look, you've talked about reaching out to a new generation of, of, of British Columbians. You've talked about reaching into camps. We started there, the conversation there of your efforts to reach, whether it be, you know, some of the social issues you, you mentioned off the top, environmental issues, which I know you've talked about. What's the reception been like out there? You know, it's it's been good, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll be candid with you. We, you know, while I was out of government, you know, we had some MLAs in the past that that made some comments that were frankly not helpful, uh, especially to the LGBTQ community. And it was very important to me, just personally, it's very important to me that this is going to be a party that is really, um, you know, accepting and welcoming to all the the LGBTQ community and frankly to, uh, you know, everyone. I, I just, that's just how I'm wired. 
And uh, so how are we doing? Well, the first by-election we had was getting me back in the legislature and right. we won by a landslide. I got almost 60% of the vote. That's not totally unexpected in the riding there of Vancouver Kulshena, uh, but nevertheless, it was a much higher margin than the NDP certainly wanted to see. But the next one was really critical. It was in Surrey South. And Surrey is a really important community in British Columbia, the second largest community in the province, the fastest growing. And we found an outstanding candidate named Eleanor Sturko, a uh, former sergeant with the RCMP, former media relations officer with the RCMP, and a member of the LGBTQ community. And I'll tell you, we won that by-election by 22 points. We hammered them by a margin much larger than everyone thought we would do. And I think that that confirms to me that this big tent idea of welcoming great candidates who happen to have, you know, different backgrounds, but reflect the diversity of our province is a really positive thing. And I view this as a huge opportunity because I really do want to make sure that everyone feels welcome under this uh, BC Liberal, BC United Party. And I note that you, that Eleanor Sturco made it, uh, was made a member of your shadow cabinet for mental health and addiction. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's pivot uh, over to to the new premier. Obviously, you had your uh, your your leadership in February, and then this past fall, John Horgan announced he was stepping away, and subsequently, we we now have a new premier in Premier Eby. Tell us what that transition's been like, and if you're seeing major differences in the government, and and what Premier Eby is maybe different from from Premier Horgan, who is a longstanding uh, premier in the country. Yeah. Well, look, I think uh, for, he's no John Horgan, that's for sure. John Horgan, you know, say what you will about him, was a likable guy. And, you know, I may quibble with his policies or lack of, you know, frankly, getting good outcomes in a lot of areas. But I think as a as a person, he was a he was a likable, good, good person. And, and I think he was genuinely popular. David Eby is a very different you know, kind of cat, to be honest with you. And I think their leadership race was a bit of a disaster. You know, he thought it was going to be a coronation until a young woman of color said, hey, I'd like to be in this race too. And she was a very much an environmental activist. And so the, a lot of the environmental organizations got behind her. Turned out she ended up signing up, you know, three times as many new members as David Eby did and was likely going to win that leadership race. And so what Eby did very, you know, this very consistent with, uh, you know, what he's done over the years. I've noticed about him, he can be very sneaky. And what he did was he quietly filed complaints uh, with the party, provided evidence to say that she was somehow doing something that broke the rules of the leadership race in terms of signing up people that were only joining to support her for leadership. But it turns out that he was doing the exact same thing with the with the labor unions. And But the bottom line is the fix was in. We knew it from the get-go. I'd said for weeks and weeks and weeks that she, she'll, they'll never let her run. And the fix was in. And that's exactly what ended up happening. They disqualified her. He ended up winning. But it created a lot of dissension and division within the NDP coalition, which is a coalition of labor and, and environmental activists. So he, Has he that continued, off. Mr. Falcon? Just to sort of interrupt you. But yeah. is, that, is there a bit of a hangover there? Or is it oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I think that, you know, so he got off to a stumbling start, to say the least. But what he's doing now is he's following an old formula that is very old hat to people that have been around politics before, which is just make a bunch of announcements. And so they've been out, you know, announcing more money for this, that and the other thing. And, and their hope is that they'll build enough momentum that they can use that to carry them into a successful election. I think the the big challenge they're going to have, though, is, first of all, they are blessed by the fact that they have a significant surplus. We've seen natural gas prices the highest they've ever been. They had the federal government did a, you know, they, they sort of 
will uh, do an adjustment of the taxes that they collect for the province. And sometimes it can turn into a positive thing for the province. They got a real benefit. So we've got like a almost a $6 billion surplus right now. And normally the way it works is that, you know, once you spend your budgets through the year, any money left over by law that we brought in has to go towards paying down the debt, which is the responsible thing to do. This government, this NDP government has said, no, actually, we want to spend all of it over the next three months. So they're going to literally, you know, spend $6 billion, almost $6 billion over the next three months. And and uh, so there'll be money flying out everywhere. I, I don't think it's going to be very effective, though, because at the end of the day, um, one of the things that we've been very clear on is the government, the public needs to focus less on the announcements and the promises and focus more on the outcomes. And when they do that, they hate the outcomes. The, the polling shows that literally 70 to 80 percent of the public think they're doing a terrible job on affordability, on crime, on you know health care, et cetera. So those are the um, things that we'll keep focusing attention on. You know, th- that's a great transition into some of these specific issues that you, you've, you've mentioned in the lead up to this. You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, you referenced that socialist sort of push. Uh, are you seeing more of that with, with David Eby as premier? And then, you know, going right into some of those issues, you mentioned affordability. I mean, literally, I came into this and, and my staff and I were talking about the price of grapes. People are talking about the cost of inflation, whether it be housing, whether it be groceries, every aspect of our lives is getting more expensive. And yeah. while some can weather that storm, there's a lot that can't. And I'm very involved with the United Way. And, and, and we're seeing that in our organization with, with people hurting out there. What's the difference between your approach and the NDP's approach to this the inflationary challenges facing British Columbians? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a great example. Uh, so we, for example, when we had, you know, leading into the summer, we were seeing gas prices like we've never seen before. BC, by the way, has the highest fuel prices in North America and has had for quite some time now. And uh, that's, you know, and this is an NDP government that tried to stop the the one, uh, you know, pipeline that was being tripled in size to get more fuel from Alberta into the lower mainland. And, uh, you know, even under John Horgan, they said they were gonna use every tool in the toolbox to, you know, thwart that, uh, that project. And then, you know, uh, no surprise when you've got growing demand and you've got restricted supply we end up with, and plus a lot of taxes thrown in, we end up with the highest fuel prices in North America. And, you know, we said to the government, provide a tax relief on all provincial taxes over the summer period for a lot of families that are really struggling. Because I, I can tell you when when it costs you $100 more a fill to, you know, fill up your minivan or your F-150 or what have you, that is that really hurts families. And they just would do nothing about it. Even though Alberta did, even though Ontario did, even Joe Biden in the United States, for goodness sakes, was talking about how they ought to waive uh, taxes, at least on a temporary basis. So, you know, there's that difference. Then there's also the practical difference of uh, their belief that, you know, big government is the answer to everything. And so when we talked about how important it was to deal with the challenge of us also having the highest housing prices in North America, David Eby was housing minister for years, and their approach was, you know, this is a government's going to solve this problem. And the real issue is, you know, evil developers and foreign buyers. Well, it turns out they were wrong in both counts. Um, developers' uh, biggest frustration is just trying to get projects approved with provincial and municipal barriers that, you know, gatekeepers that get in the way of, of them getting those projects uh, into the marketplace. And foreign buyers, it turns out, are an insignificant amount of the problem here in British Columbia. The real problem is we're not getting supply into the market. And David Eby and the NDP didn't realize that for almost six years. And only now are they saying, gosh, you know, maybe supply might have something to do with the problem we're facing. 
people like myself that spent 10 years in the business are like, well, no kidding. You know, this is no big surprise to any of us. It is to them. But the problem is he still believes that the answer to getting affordable housing is to have government build it. He's literally said that he wants government to be building the affordable housing for families. And I'll tell you, that will not end well. It is going to be uh, just as much of a disaster as the current housing policy has been up to this point. So I think those are the things that we will come out with uh, some counter policies that I think will resonate much more with the public because they're they're grounded in solid economic fundamentals. Well, we certainly watch, but that'll be an interesting discussion with your background in housing and realty. That uh, that 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 will end the and the issue is such a big issue and has been for so long in BC. Uh, that'll be certainly something to watch. You know, building on some other issues, every province is struggling with healthcare. It seems the Canadian healthcare system has has really not recovered at all from the pandemic and and perhaps there are challenges that we all knew that was there and papered over that are that are now really impacting people's lives from coast to coast to coast we, we yeah. see that this is just a british columbia um issue even recently premier the premier of alberta's talked about investing their own money not even waiting for the feds how does your approach to healthcare look uh, in this current situation? You mentioned you've got a surplus in BC that that's pretty much getting tallied out, and and not so much for healthcare. What is uh, what is the BC Liberals or BC United going to do under your leadership in healthcare? Well, you know, it's uh, there's some irony here because I, I it's not often that I agree with the federal government, but in the, in this case where the federal government says no, we're not going to give a blank check to the provinces and just give them more money for healthcare, I actually agree with them, and the reason I agree with them is because I think that. Frankly, uh, the, the feds are, are not helpful in healthcare at all. I wanna be clear about that. They've, I can't think of anything they've done aside from providing some more dollars that has been particularly helpful in driving renewal, innovation, change, all the kind of things that we need to see in a healthcare system. But I also think that the one thing they can do is say to the provinces, you're not getting more money until we see that you're trying new things so that we get different results. Because I can tell you in British Columbia right now, it is as bad as I've ever seen it. And I'm born and raised in this province. This is not just politics. Uh, we got one in five British Columbians that cannot even access a family doctor. We've got 1 million British Columbians waiting to see a specialist. Our cancer care, which used to be the envy of North America, has gotten disastrously bad where people are waiting so long to see an oncologist that unfortunately in many cases, the cancer has already spread and, and uh, you know they, they pay too big a price, sometimes the ultimate price. And our emergency departments are just overflowing. Like our system can't even handle, frankly, a flu season. And I just think that we have to do things differently. I was only health minister for two years, but in those two years, I really started trying lots of innovation. I tried to move away from block funding and have patient-focused funding where the dollars follow the patients so that we could start to create some, some change in this very sclerotic government-run government managed inefficient system of healthcare that we've got right now. And as I always say to people, the NDP are always quick to say, oh, well, he wants a US style healthcare system. I have not met a single person that thinks a US healthcare system is the model. But I'm also smart enough to realize we've always had two tier healthcare. It's called a plane ticket. And people are flying out of here every day to the United States, to India, to China to get healthcare because they can't get it in BC. And what I want to do is focus on the patient and make sure that we've got a system that is responding to the needs of the patient. And that means we have to be have the courage to try different ways of meeting the needs of those patients. And this government's approach is more government, more bureaucracy. I can tell you, you're in Alberta right now. We have in BC, they have grown the 
bureaucracy of healthcare by almost 100% in five years. We have 64 vice presidents earning an average of $400,000 a year overseeing our healthcare system. In neighboring Alberta, which has a similar size population, you've got seven vice presidents, seven versus 64. And I can tell you, if 64 vice presidents were getting us great outcomes where people were getting good service and you know we were getting the kind of outcomes that I wanna see, then I, I'd have to say, gee, it seems like an awful lot to me, but something seems to be getting done here, but that's not what's happening. We've got a lot more bureaucrats and a lot worse outcomes. And so we need to have the courage to tackle those issues and change it. Yeah, that's that would be a lot of refocusing of dollars. We started to see that discussion across the country to those front lines. So many issues I want to get into with you, but but let's quickly go through. You mentioned the budget surplus, and we'll continue to talk about that. But let's move to safety. Um, we've seen this in major cities across the country. You know, a lot of people stayed home, and and those cities changed. Right, uh, cities cities don't sleep, as they say, and and that was the same during the pandemic. And now we're seeing a lot of public safety issues happening in. Uh, well, both rural and 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 city communities for different reasons, as as we know, we've seen a lot of rural crime. That's been a big issue in Western Canada, but then also in cities, we've seen uh, a lot of social problems, a lot of challenges. Uh, so it's not just a policing public safety problem; it's also right. a societal one. What's the approach for you as leader? Yeah, I, this is this is this is a huge issue for me, and something I'm very very passionate about. I spent ten years in the private sector on the board of a charity called Street to Home Foundation that worked to create housing for the homeless in Vancouver. I invested $30 million of private sector dollars, uh, you know, matched in some cases by city or provincial dollars to create much needed housing. But what we realized is we did a lot more research into who are these folks on the streets and what are their issues they're dealing with. And I can tell you that in British Columbia, it is the worst I have ever seen it. And I've traveled every part of this province. And the person in charge of law and order in British Columbia for the entire time the NDP had been in power up until he became premier was David Eby. He was the attorney general. And for a long time, and, and we've been saying this since I appeared in the legislature, we've been going after him saying, look, we've got a situation now where we've got repeat violent offenders that are being arrested and released off on the same day to go back into communities to create lots of, uh, you know, social disorder and chaos and assaulting people, et cetera. And you need to deal with this. That, you know, there has to be uh, a presumption of public safety taking uh, priority over the interests of an individual to get released back into society. And David Eby refused to do it. I think part of that's his background. He used to work with Pivot Legal Society. He wrote a book called How to Sue the Police. Uh, there's very much an anti-police mentality in David Eby personally and in his government generally. And it's frustrating because there's, um, you know, total chaos in our communities. So just to give you one example... Uh, the mayor of Vancouver, the former NDP mayor of Vancouver, mind you, along with a bunch of other mayors from large urban centers, wrote to David Eby when he was attorney general and said that his catch and release program that he was overseeing was causing chaos. And they gave specific examples because Eby didn't believe them. He said, anecdotes don't work for me. Show me the evidence. So they did. The Vancouver NDP mayor at that time, he's been thrown out, fortunately, but at that time wrote and said there were 40 individuals in Vancouver that have been arrested 6,385 times last year in one year. And that just gives you some insight into how ridiculous the situation's got, not just in Vancouver, but that's in Terrace and Prince George and communities right across the province. So what the BC Liberals have said is two things. Number one, those people that are committing violent repeat offenders, they've gotta be detained in remand and in jail because the interests of the community have to take priority over the interests of that individual to be released. But the second thing is the compassionate side of me in our party says, 
we know there are a lot of folks out there with severe mental health issues. And we know that 30 odd years ago, governments right across North America made a decision to empty out our mental institutions, as they used to be referred to. And the idea was that these folks were going to be provided supports, you know, in their neighborhoods or their communities. The supports were never there or they were very fractured. And so now we've got a whole generation of individuals out there with really severe mental health challenges that are being exploited and abused by drug dealers, human traffickers, et cetera. And we owe them a higher duty of care. And what I've said and what we have said is BC Liberals will reconstitute the old Riverview, but not the under that old model of institutionalization, but a more modernized, compassionate, apartment-like settings, but with 24-7 psychiatric and medical care for those folks that are most vulnerable. And that can get them off the street into proper care so they can be stabilized and with a goal to having them one day back in the communities with real genuine proper supports. And if we do that, then we can focus on the addiction issues, which requires way more focus on treatment and recovery. The NDP approach is all about decriminalizing hard drugs, providing safe shoot ups, uh, you know, areas, and uh, as they call it, harm reduction. Well, there is no such thing as safe drugs. And frankly, the, res the, the results that we're getting right now in terms of addictions and overdoses are the worst we've ever seen. And every year this government's been in power, the rate of overdose deaths increases to the highest level ever in our history. So once again, we're getting terrible results, but government will just double down and keep doing more of the same. That's got to change. You're really hearing that results-based approach from you when it comes to healthcare and so social issues and the like. Um, Ms. Polkin, look, you know where I, I'm, I'm coming to you from today, from Alberta. So I've got to ask about energy, of course. And, and look, no. BC is an energy resource-rich province. And, and whether that comes from green energy and renewable energy to non-renewable energy, you know, BC is is often, it's forgotten, I think, sometimes in Canada because of perhaps the noise that, that Alberta and Saskatchewan sort of air sucks, they, we suck up when it comes to energy. But yes. BC is an energy leader uh, in Canada and has been uh, since I can remember. Tell us a little bit about the approach. We've seen under EB, the mandate letters seem fairly aggressive in that envi environmental and, and energy place. We've already seen a rejection of, of, a, of a new project, uh, and now it's a coal project. But certainly that's, you know, investors and, and, and folks in the energy industry in my province are certainly watching that now. Talk a little bit about the, the environment under Premier EB and what the BC Liberals, BC United would, would do uh, as government, but also understanding, you know, the importance of addressing climate change, um, which we sure. see now across all provinces and all parties. Yeah, and I'm very proud of uh, being part of a party that brought in North America's very first revenue neutral carbon tax. You know, that that's something I'm very proud of. And we did that in 2008. It's important for your listeners, especially in Alberta, to understand that revenue neutral meant that by law, every nickel that was generated from that carbon tax had to be returned to the public in the form of lower personal income taxes and lower business taxes. So it really was a tax shift, not a tax grab. And I think this is fundamentally important when we talk to the public about caring about the environment, because what I see is a lot of politicians like to use the environment as frankly cover to allow them to pick the pockets of taxpayers. And unfortunately, this NDP government has followed suit. So one of the first things they did is say, well, we hate this revenue neutral idea. We want the we want the revenues to go into government, not back into taxpayers' pockets. And that's what they've done. They've taken the money into government. And that's really unfortunate. So I would change that. I would get back to revenue neutrality. Second thing is, I think natural gas in particular, which is where British Columbia has you know, the most ample uh, reserves up in the Montney Basin, et cetera, we have a huge opportunity there to help do our part to reduce global emissions. 
And this, this, you know, we cannot lose sight of this. And this is where I argue with many of the environmentalists that will come and see me that have sort of the zero sum, we must shut down everything right now, or, you know, the world's coming to an end. And what I point out to them is, actually, do we have an obligation to help globally reduce global emissions? And when they acknowledge, of course we do, then I say, great. That's why liquefied natural gas is so important, because we have an opportunity now to take that liquefied natural gas and to export it to Asia, to India, to countries that are currently using coal-fired power, which is the dirtiest form of emissions. And we can help reduce emissions in China, for example, by up to 50% by using LNG as a transitional fuel to help us get to that greener future that we all want. And by the way, British Columbia is also blessed with a lot of the natural resources like copper, silver, et cetera, that are going to be necessary to, to, to fuel the electric cars and wind turbines and batteries of the future. So that's something that we have to play a role, but it also means we got to get mining and we got to get access to those minerals and make sure we get them out and help the, the global economy transition to that new future. And finally, we have to look at what's happening around the world. I am appalled that we've got a war in Europe again taking place with an autocratic dictatorship in Russia, you know, um, uh, invading a country like Ukraine, creating all kinds of challenges uh, in terms of energy in Europe. And the Europeans are saying, we need help. And LNG is a big part of the solution. Where is Canada in all this? We ought to be part of that solution too. We shouldn't have, that the Europeans shouldn't have to rely on corrupt dictatorships like Saudi Arabia and Russia in order to feed their energy requirements. Canada, Alberta, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, we ought to be part of that solution too. And so that's something where I differ very, very much from the NDP. Because at the end of the day, we are part of a global society. We have an obligation to help them uh, get to a greener future and reduce emissions overall while we are transitioning away from a fossil fuel driven economy, which is under the best case scenario, is going to take decades. And so we just have to be part of that constructive solution and not pretend that we're going to solve all the problems here. And by the way, we could shut down everything in British Columbia tomorrow, every single, you know, plant, car, you name it. We only represent, that's probably three days of global emissions. So let's be realistic about what we can do domestically. We can certainly lead by example, but we need to help the world get there too. Well, we've seen, we've seen uh, European leaders, the uh, German chancellor was over and left empty-handed. We've seen Japanese leaders now uh, approach British Columbia. So the world is looking. So you're saying BC's LNG, that the future could be bright under a uh, Premier Falcon leadership, if you will. Very much so. And I think the LNG industry, we can work with them to help them become net zero. And that is, uh, that is a goal that we can absolutely reach. I think that people forget that technology is going to help get us to that greener future too. And the advances that are being made in technology, the eagerness at which the engineers that work in the oil and gas sector, they're excited about you know, um, reducing emissions. And there's lots of technological um, uh, you know, answers to some of the challenges we face. We just need to make sure the investments get made and, and uh, we release the, you know, the, the incredible power of uh, the private sector in trying to determine how we can do this. So I got to ask, when do you think you're going to have a chance to do all this? Are we going to see an election in British Columbia this year? I think you're mandated for October 2024. So still That's quite right. a while away from the yeah. from a legislative standpoint. But you pointed it out earlier. Uh, this wouldn't be the first time the NDP have pulled it earlier. Uh, even Premier Horgan did that. What do you think? Are we going to have an election in BC this year? Well, you know, the Premier, Premier Eby has been asked this multiple times, and he has been very emphatic that there's going to be no spring election. It would be remarkably bold of him to 
having just so clearly stated no election. Uh, even that surprised me. I would have thought he'd want to keep a couple of you know options open, but he's been very, very clear. There's going to be no spring election. And so I think it's it's probably unlikely, but as I've said to my to our party, he's been in that surplus like he's like he's in an election. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Which <laughs> you know in itself is crazy, but but that's just who they are, right? The NDP doesn't like to pay down debt. They like to spend money, and the problem is that I've been a finance minister. I can. There's no responsible way you can spend six billion dollars in three months. Simply not possible. So a lot of money will be sprayed out there with very little positive impact, and it, unfortunately, it can actually make things worse because it creates bad behavior in the bureaucracy which gets snowed with all this money and then figures out how to spend it quickly. Not not a good thing. But look, at the end of the day, what I've said to my caucus and our party, we're going to be ready for a spring election because there's no downside to being ready. In fact, it's all upside. So let's go do that. Let's go raise some money. Let's find great candidates. Let's get our policy you know, accelerated so that we are in a position that whenever it gets called, we will be ready. And I'll tell you this, we're going to win. Because, uh, and and believe me, I'm not doing this, as I said, right from the outset, because I needed the job or I just, you know, needed to see my name in the paper. I'm doing this because I'm going to be the next premier of the province, because I believe at the end of the day that British Columbians do want to see solutions to the challenges we face. And they want to see leadership in government that's not afraid to say, you know what, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but by God, we're going to ask all the hard questions and we are going to do what it takes to get you know, good outcomes for British Columbians, in spite of all the challenges we face provincially, nationally, and internationally. Where should we watch? For those of us outside the province, I know any good leader is going to say the battleground is the entire province. I'm going to take that away from you. Is is it Greater Vancouver? We saw a big municipal shift there. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, perceived NDP sort of uh, leaning uh, council has been replaced with perhaps a, a council that's maybe more friendly to, to the BC Liberals, BC United. Is that the battleground? Is it Greater Vancouver? Yes, it is. There's no question about it. And you're totally right to point out, I think, for your viewers that aren't from British Columbia, uh, the recent municipal elections were very instructive. You know, the NDP got hammered. The NDP mayor of Vancouver got thrown out. Uh, a group called ABC, led by Ken Sim, a, a friend of mine. I like Ken. I was a, fan, a supporter of his all the way. You know, he just clobbered them. And the ABC party, by the way, when it comes to name change discussion, didn't even exist a year ago, right? right. Nobody had ever right. heard of it. But they clobbered them on council, on school board, and on <clears throat> and on the parks board. So I think it's important to you know really understand that there is a there is an appetite for change out there. And if we can demonstrate to the public that we're going to provide good, competent alternative to this government that's going to get better results, and we're a big tent party that's very inclusive, that you know welcomes people regardless of their background, regardless of their uh, you know their ethnicity, whatever the case may be then I think that uh, that's the ingredients for how we're going to form government and get this province moving again. Well, Mr. Falcon, thank you so much for joining us and spending so much time with us. I feel like I'm cutting you short, but we're already into this for for, for quite a little while here. And I, I think it's just been a tremendous discussion. Lots for us to, to watch for in the coming weeks and months ahead. I know you're going to be traveling the province quite extensively. So good luck with your travels, safe travels to you. Thank a happy you. new year. And, and thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be watching. Thanks a lot, Jason. Really appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed it immensely. And I can't wait to come back and do this one on Premier. Well, we'll hold you to that. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. All the best. Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. This episode was produced by Krista Hudson, Zoe Kirstead, Theodora Till, and Alex Schiff. 
I want to extend a very big thank you to new BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon for joining us on this episode. It was so valuable to hear his perspective and priorities for 2023 and discuss what's going on in British Columbia. If you've enjoyed this episode, then follow us on Twitter at Western Edge by Nav to stay up to date on all of our episodes. As always, thanks for joining us and listening to The Western Edge. Mm-hmm.